I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, doing a little something different for this episode. The guest is Edward Keenan, the Washington Bureau Chief of the Toronto Star and a former local and political columnist in Toronto. He is assigned the very big job of covering America for the Toronto Star. And he has a really unique perspective on just covering the United States though not being born in the United States. And I do find myself, obviously as an American, living in Toronto, um, trying to figure out, I guess in many ways, what's, what is going on in the United States right now. And it does feel like a, like a hedge moment. I, uh, like everybody else, watch the scenes out of Buffalo, New York, my old hometown, and Uvalde, Texas. And... You just, you want to fucking scream. You, you, you want to know why something cannot be done when children are shot, when churchgoers are shot. And so Edward Keenan and I spent um, a little over an hour or so, I think, just discussing his job, covering the U.S. from a foreign perspective, how he landed the job, covering America at one of its most fraught moments, he traveled to Uvalde, Texas to report on that tragedy and what that experience was like. Um, the whole idea of uh, just political entertainment, conflict television, the professional wrestling element of politics right now and and what that does for a society. And um, again, it's a little different. We will, of course, have sports media content on this podcast on another episode this week. But I did think he would be an interesting guest for you just to, to get a kind of a different reporting perspective on writing about and, and traveling through the United States. So Edward Keenan, Washington Bureau Chief of the Toronto Star, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Edward Keenan is the Washington Bureau Chief of the Toronto Star. Prior to his current job, he was a columnist for that newspaper, or that outlet, I should say, specializing in all things Toronto including its people, politics, and culture. And as I mentioned earlier, um, this is a podcast I've wanted to do for a long time because uh, you know I find myself sort of interestingly linked to Edward Keenan in that he's reporting on things in my home country, yet he reports on them obviously through a Canadian prism. And that's interesting to me, given obviously now when I sort of read and take in news from the United States, I'm an American who, who brings that through a prism of now living in Toronto, and I'm pleased to be joined by Edward Keenan. Edward, uh, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. I will not ask you about Fox Sports or, or ESPN. We'll, we will we will stick to your uh, 
Yeah, <laughs> you're straight. <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard, if you did want to talk about um, one one of the things about moving down here to Washington D.C. was that to uh, to watch my beloved Leafs, <laughs> I had to yes. pay for an egregiously expensive cable package, um, and and so I have uh, been able to track the proliferation in Canada of. Uh, sports gambling ads that have just sort of taken over NHL broadcasts that all they have. Yeah, yeah. I, the, so, uh, so if, if you wanted to get into that stuff, I'm I'm plugged into that at least. Well, I will say this as a Leafs fan, it has to just be heartbreaking because you see uh, the lightning path, and that was a very winnable path for the Maple Leafs yeah. had they gotten past the lightning. So, <laughs> no, exactly, and it, the same last year with Montreal, and exactly. uh, you know, in a way, the lightning are just a better team. And so it, it hurts just as much, but there's, there's more you can rationalize to yourself this year. Same, same with some of those Boston losses in the past, but, uh, uh, but last year was the one that got away. I think I agree. Yeah. I truly believe that the, um, had the Leafs gotten past the first round in either of these two years, they would have been in the cup. I wouldn't guarantee they'd win, but I think the path was such that no, yeah, it looked was, good uh, for the final. It so. was there for him. At least, and then you get to the final, you know, Kyle Dubas could have a job for 120 years. So, um, but anyway. Yeah, those statues, exactly. <laughs> All right. So, you know, I know the star has had a history of having correspondence in the States. So let's just start here. How did you land this job? Uh. Well, I mean, the star had a longer history of having correspondence uh, all around the world. We used to, when I started at the star, I think uh, we had a South Asian correspondent in the past. We had some in China, in Jerusalem, in London, England. Uh, but now the last foreign correspondent at the star is uh, is in Washington, D.C. here, and it's me. Uh, prior to me holding this job, I was the city columnist at the star, Um and Daniel Dale, who Daniel and I worked at City Hall at the same time covering Rob Ford um, alongside. And so Daniel came down to be the Washington correspondent after um, as a sort of a veteran of the Rob Ford administration and, and all the drama that went with that just in time to cover the rise of Donald Trump. Um, and a lot of other veterans of Toronto City Hall of that same era actually came down here as well. Katie Simpson from CBC, Jackson Proskow from Global News, uh, Adrian Morrow at the Globe and Mail. Um, but, but Daniel, uh, you know, made quite a name for himself, uh, not just in Canada, but here in the United States, because he started he was the first among many who followed to just sort of like fact check everything Donald Trump said. And right. um and as a result of that uh, high-profile success, he got hired uh, to, to be a full-time fact-checker for CNN down here. Uh, and when he took that job, the, the star just posted, you know, that they were looking for a Washington correspondent. I had been writing about – I lived in Toronto my entire life. I, I went to university in Toronto. I grew up there. I love the city so much. I expect I'm going to come back and continue writing about it. But I, I had always kind of wanted to, to go somewhere else for a while and see what it was like, uh, get a little bit of perspective. And professionally too, I had made the city kind of the subject of almost all my writing um, for 20 years of my career up to that point. And it's like, um, 
even your favorite song after you've listened to it again and again and again, it doesn't, the drums don't kick the way they used to, you know, you can't hear the hook uh, that, that you love so much quite the same way. And I was feeling a little bit like that about covering Toronto. Uh, and in the meantime, the stories, political story, the big political story down here in the United States, when Donald Trump was still president at that time, as, as well as even now, um, is, is fascinating and feels like a, a pivotal historic moment. And as a journalist, uh, it really appealed to me to kind of come in here and try and try and get inside that or bring some outsider eyes to it and and see, you know, as a storyteller, what I could come up with. You uh, you sort of mentioned this, but I'll sort of ask it directly. You are covering America at one of its most fraught times. And I wonder just can you feel that or instinctively know that through talking to people around the country through obviously digesting all sorts of media, because I, I don't think that's cliche. I, I think that's, a, I think America feels, I think, I think America is at a, a moment where um, there's a lot of unknowns and things can go in many different directions. It feels fraught. How do you, how do you see it? Yeah. I mean, it, it feels, I think almost uh, like a hinge point in in the history of the United States in a way that it maybe hasn't since like 1968 here. I wasn't here in 1968. I wasn't alive in 1968, but, um, but from, from my reading of history, you know, there are, there's, there's a civil war. There were some periods in the early 1900s, the great depression uh, at, in the world wars era where, where it seemed like things could go different ways. Uh, there was the late sixties and, and the, like intense polarization and culture classes clashes and and like culture war that existed then and and then it feels like there's now there's a similar point where like on all kinds of fronts um it, the the US is 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 just at a a real turning point kind of moment that that could go either way i mean there's donald trump and trump what you might call trumpism but a, a real sort of verge towards uh, strongman authoritarianism. Um, and, and, but then beyond that and, and, and a, a stride that, I guess, um, the, the political culture has become one like so uh, immensely divided between rural and urban places and the people who live in them, red America and blue America, um, there's a real like palpable hatred among a lot of the people that you talk to uh, for each other. Um, and, and it, it often feels like, especially when I'm out reporting, not so much, you know, when I'm at my kids' baseball games here in the suburbs of Washington, DC, uh, but when I'm out reporting at events, it, it really feels like, like it's a tenuous kind of moment uh, in which the country could go in two different directions and it's it's really unclear uh which direction it's going to go uh and, and i mean that that at the same time and directly related and interwoven with that while i've been down here uh i spent a lot of co lot time covering the the protest movement that rose up in the wake of george floyd's death and that again felt like 
like one of those moments where maybe something new was going to happen or, or maybe get smothered down in ways that would be destructive in the long term. And I mean, it, so, so two, like two different moments where it, it felt to me covering this stuff we've been talking about, I've been talking about um, where you could almost just feel that, I'm standing here at a moment in history where where two paths diverge and and, and the choice is going to be made here almost was like outside the courthouse in Minneapolis uh, as the George Chauvin uh, verdict was about to be announced. Uh, it felt like like in the one hand, things could take a, a very ugly and, and dark turn, not just there, but nationwide if, if one verdict was announced and, and that there would be a, a big feeling of relief if a different one was announced. And, and you could almost feel that in the air and in the energy of the people there. Um, and, and then uh, I was not inside the Capitol building, but I was standing outside it on the lawn and on the porches during the um, January 6th sort of insurrectionist riot. And again, it, it, it was a surreal scene because you had these guys in paramilitary gear who were uh, uh, you know, even with like uh, radios talking to each other and whatnot, and and who are obviously running a an operation, and and then you had an angry sort of mob following them, smashing in windows and fist fighting with police and and throwing barricades against the walls. Um, and then you know, uh, three hundred feet away, you had people dressed like Uncle Sam and you know, t-shirt vendors and and people out for a picnic with their children. So it was like this weird it didn't feel like what a revolution, what you might think it would feel like necessarily all the way through. Uh, but, but at the same time, just standing there uh, and having spent a lot of time in that building and knowing what the security normally is like and how hard it is to get access to it, to see that happening um, was again, one of those uh, moments where, where, you know, you're here at a, a particular point in history that, that is going to be important, uh, not just in the moment, but in, in what happens over the next 10 or 20 or more years. Um, and, and I mean, obviously, as we talk, the, the commission into January 6th is just about to hold public hearings next, you know, this month. Um, the, the fallout of that is still coming. But like, there have been a lot of those moments while I've been down here where you have this feeling um, of almost the weight of history on on this moment in this place where you are. How do you uh, determine what you're going to write about and cover on a on a daily and weekly basis? <laughs> Obvi obviously, that you know that conversation will exist with editors, and there's obviously travel considerations. But you know, it does seem like you have a pretty wide latitude to cover whatever major story exists in the United States. Yeah, uh, I mean, it is a conversation that I'm having an ongoing one, usually with my editors. And um, and I, I sort of try to plan a calendar around what I think will, you know, give a broad view of, of what's important that's happening in the United States that Canadians either need to know because it affects Canada. So that'd be stuff like um, trade negotiations and whatnot, like with Canada, right? Um but then also the things that are happening in American culture that Canadians are really interested in because of uh, the shadow that American culture casts on Canada. 
Uh, and also because, you know, North America has a sort of a interwoven culture and there are echoes and ripples like these two countries are best of friends in the world, probably. Right. So so I, I'm looking at big issues like um, the racial justice protest movement that I know are important to Canadians and looking at ways into those. Um, I'm looking at the major sort of uh, political events on the calendar, like the midterm elections. Um, and trying to plan around, you know, Canadians don't know, need to know who to, who's going to win the race for the state house in, in Georgia, but they, they may be really interested in how the governor's race there and the Senate race there are going to influence the whole shape of, of national politics in the United States could be deciding lines and how uh, the big issues uh, like Donald Trump's endorsement or not and his control over the, the GOP or how um, race issues are uh, voter voting rights issues are playing out there in that one place. So I try to plan looking at the election calendar for like which, which of these stories might might be most revealing or interesting for Canadians. And then once you've sort of made up that plan uh, based on on sort of major issues and the political calendar or the known calendar, um, Th then things happen that, that you feel like you can't look away from, like the shootings in Buffalo and in Uvalde, Texas, uh, just in the last couple of weeks, where, you know, when, when the shooting happened in Buffalo, in a way, uh, you know, as a lifelong Toronto resident who grew up watching Buffalo television and visiting Buffalo to eat chicken wings or, you know, because my mom wanted to go cross-border shopping, um, uh, just like it felt like part of Toronto. So I really felt it intently. And so I, I wrote a column from here in Washington about that. Um, but then I was talking to my editors and they were, they were saying, you know, you're our American correspondent. I think you should go uh, and talk to the people in that community. And in a way it, it, you know, it's a two hour drive from Toronto. Somebody from the city desk could have got there quicker than me. Um, but uh, you know, trying to cover this United States, those kind of, moments uh like and that's a desperately sad one um are are an important part of the story and Valde, texas actually i was in georgia covering the election there and my editor called me and said i, I think you should go like i think this uh you know sh mass shootings can get come to seem mundane in the united states or at least seen from canada the number of them that that seemed to happen and yet, um, like 19 school children killed in their classroom is just a, a, a horror that, that you can't look away from. And I, and I think both in Canada and the United States, it has uh, impacted people uh, and how they're thinking about these things more so than a lot of gun uh, crimes have. Um, but it was, it was interesting for me to go to both of those places um, and, and get to... <laughs> To, to be an eyewitness to how a community tries to, to deal with that and tries to, um, I, I mean, the sentence almost wants to end itself by say, pick itself up or move on or something, but they, they're not doing either of those things. They're, they're mourning and grieving and trying to uh, find some element of sense or purpose or meaning in, in this, this horrible, uh, slaughter that's been in, inflicted on them, right? Um, 
I don't know. Sorry, I want to a simple question about how I how I plan and decide <laughs> what to what to cover. No, no, I, I took a dark I, turn there, but yeah. No, no, no. I appreciate I appreciate the context, and it leads me to this. You wrote not too long ago uh, regarding your Uvalde reporting. I was part of the media frenzy, and while trying my best to be gentle and respectful, I felt conflicted about being there. This is how the world learns the truth about what happened and who it happened to. Maybe we all hope this is a step in the understanding the full gravity of it and towards having it happen less often. But it does seem like maybe a further traumatization of an already shattered community. So that leads me to ask you, like, this is obviously not easy reporting. You're in Uvalde. You're a stranger. You're not even of the country. How do you approach your reporting there? And I can only imagine that that's really difficult reporting, even though... You know, as you mentioned earlier, you've covered City Hall and, you know, ugly politics, et cetera. But that, I don't know, Uvalde, I, I feel that in my soul here as an American who lives on the other side of the border. So I can only imagine what it would have been like being there. Yeah. And I, I have um, children of roughly, of one child of roughly the same age as, as those children in, in Rob Elementary School and uh, two other children. And I mean, that it, I also have, I'm equipped with human empathy. So all of these sort of tragedies uh, I feel, but this one, it felt um, e even more horrifying to me because of the, how easily I could imagine it in my own life. Um, and I mean, it's, it's always uh, strange and difficult, especially when there's a bad news story and I haven't covered war zones and whatnot. I, uh, but, but I mean, for, for when you're just sort of flying in, in the aftermath of something, there's always a, a bit of a scramble element and it's always a bit odd because you don't have sources on the ground there you don't have context you're not in the case of uvalde i i had barely heard of it before so it i didn't have a lot of um local context uh and understanding already um but but i mean my my approach there is to go to the places uh like, like i drove immediately to the elementary school itself and then you know to the to the city hall, the town square, the main streets, um, to just try to, as I say, sort of like gently approach people and, and start asking about, uh, you know, what happened here, what they saw, how, how they feel about it, what they're thinking about it, what they, and, and the truth is, is that in most cases, um, pe people are, I wouldn't say eager, but, they want to share the story, right? They want the world to know what happened there. They want the world to know what kind of community it is and was and, and how horrible and senseless this is. Um, they, they also want answers, right? So, so in this case, I was arriving the day after the shooting um, and, and at the elementary school, there was already a, a huge media presence um in, in buffalo there was as well but the the top supermarket is on a sort of a main street there it's got a big parking lot in front of it parking lots across the street um where, whereas the elementary school in texas is on a it's in a little residential neighborhood on very narrow side streets and so the police cordon had had you know dictated a way in which basically the media were set up on on people's front lawns um, surrounding the school um, at a particular intersection. And there were just hundreds of reporters there. Um, and, and so 
that that's where you really got a sense of like this press as a, a re-traumatizing invading army. Um, but I, I would say that that you know parents and relatives of of people who well like the parents of school children who were in the school and survived and relatives of people who had died in the shooting um uh were coming to sort of lay flowers and and visit and many of them they would get swarmed it, it was hard to to get any kind of a personal exclusive interview there um because as soon as you'd see somebody coming, a reporter might approach them and start walking with them. And if they, if they stop to talk, then they'd be surrounded like, like a politician is in a scrum or a, um, and yet I, I think quite a lot of those people, I, I was being, as I mentioned, particularly careful, but I think even a lot of the, most of the other journalists were also being very, trying their best to be very respectful. People didn't want to talk. They weren't being sort of chased or anything like that. It was sort of, but when people did want to talk there, it was clear that there were a lot of ears ready to listen um, and ask questions. Um, you know, and so, so then I, I went around the town a little bit more to talk to different people, but I, as an outsider at, from Canada, um, and only going to be there for a couple days. Um, I, I didn't think from the beginning that my main objective was to get to the bottom of the intricacies of the police response, right? Or the um, the existing school safety protocols there and whether they were followed properly. Like I think there, there is a, a local press there, both a local newspaper who did a an astoundingly good job of covering this story, given that many of the reporters and editors had personal involvements with this story, um, in, including a woman whose, whose daughter was killed there. And she wrote the obituary for her daughter um, in the local Uvalde newspaper, but also a San Antonio press and a Texas press that covers both the state house and the regions and the towns. They're, they're really doing, um, accountability work through their existing sources and their existing knowledge of the system there. And I thought as a Canadian correspondent, my job partly was to just be a set of Canadian eyes witnessing what's going on in this community in the aftermath of this, what it looks like, it feels like, and what, what people are talking about. And so I was much more focused on, on just talking to everyday people on the street or people who had some connection to it who were coming and then looking at the the scene and how it was being covered and whatnot. Let me ask this directly. A, uh, as a Canadian covering this stuff, the idea of repeated mass shootings means what to you? Boy, um, I, I would say a couple things like, well, <laughs> The biggest thing is is the gun culture in the United States is so foreign. Um, there are so many ways in which Canadian culture and American culture are are very very similar, you know, and it boils down to how we pronounce "sorry" or "about," um, and and yet the gun culture is just uh, and the gun laws are just night and day. So there are mass killings in Canada, um, in Nova Scotia, a guy who had smuggled guns in from the United States actually 
uh, killed 22 people in Toronto. Uh, I covered it or helped cover a story about a, a angry misogynist who, who killed 10 people by driving a van on the sidewalk. Like, uh, these tragedies happen, but the frequency with which they happen and the body counts that pile up here in the United States um, are, are just so on such a different level than they are in Canada. And, but, but in my mind, it, it almost becomes immediately linked to, to just the prevalence of guns here. Right? Like I knew one person in Canada with a handgun and it was a, a friend of mine's parent who was a collector who had to store their, their licensed permitted handguns unloaded in a locked cabinet with their ammunition in a separate locked cabinet. And they had to transport them in separate locked boxes in the back trunk of their car to the gun club where they were allowed to sort of load them and use them to shoot targets. But that, that was the restrictions. And that's the only outside of a police officer. That's the only handgun over I ever knew I knew about in Toronto. Um, whereas in the United States, it's you, you go to the Walmart and they have a selection of handguns and rifles and, and whatnot. Uh, I don't want to single out Walmart because I don't know actually if they, what exactly their policy is in a given state, but you see them in department stores, you see them in sporting goods stores, a whole big gun section. You see a uh, gun stores, especially when I cross the river to Virginia here and, and, and even talking to gun control advocates here, I was just writing something today about a reflection on, you know, one of the angriest, most strident guys I talked to standing outside Rob elementary school was saying, you know, we have to ban these assault rifles. How is it that an 18 year old can go into a store and get this? And then he kind of qualified, like, I'm not talking about taking away anybody's handguns. Obviously you need a handgun to protect your family, but you don't need these military weapons. And that's just such a foreign sentiment to me as a Canadian. Um, and so when these mass shootings happen, it's not like we don't have these killers in Canada, um, but when they happen and when they happen so frequently, um, it, it's, it does feel foreign to me and it does feel directly linked to the, to the gun culture in the United States. Let me, uh, let me sort of personalize this for a second. I'm I'm, and I, I intentionally mm -hmm. tried sort of not to do so during this podcast, but I will say when, when I read news out of the United States and I, I probably have read everything you've written in the last three years, proud subscribers to the <laughs> Star print edition, by the way. So you're welcome for the, uh, uh, old school uh, subscription there. Um, I, I have a sort of a weird combination of feeling um, angry, despondent, uh, and in many mm -hmm. ways guilty because I'm not there. You know what I mean? Like I'm not in the fight. And, and not to say that like I'd be marching per se somewhere or or an activist or anything like that, but I'm I, I'm disconnected by the by a, by a real geographic border. And so I wonder, um, when you talk to Canadians in the United States about what they're seeing in the United States, what are they saying? Because to me, again, while we are different, like that's an interesting parallel to me because I'm, I'm looking at it mm -hmm. from afar through the prism of obviously being raised in that country, loving that country. They're looking at it as in, in many ways in 
sort of a similar position that I'm in. They're they're straight they're foreigners in that country, yet they probably had some kind of viewpoint of what that country was when they when they when they arrived. And so I I don't know. I would be curious in terms of of the Canadians you've spoken with just in the course of your reporting. What are they saying about the U.S. from their perspective? Yeah, I speak with a lot of Canadians in the course of my reporting, and I also speak with a lot of, or I participate in online groups of expatriate Canadians who live in the United States, uh, you know, support groups. I mean, there's just this broad distinction, and I think there's a difference. There are some Canadians who are in the United States because a job brought them here. Um, or a, or a love, the love of their life right. brought them here or something like that, right? Um, and I think a lot of those people, I've certainly talked to some who, who I've talked to some who have moved back uh, as a result of the tumultuous political situation and their fears about it. Um, I've talked to a lot who have considered moving back. Um, and then, you know, there are people who chose the United States because they believe it's a freer culture that it's uh, like lower taxes and they like the second amendment gun laws and whatnot. And it, I mean, those people have a very different perspective. Um, and a, lo- a lot of them are kind of shrugging about it or, or some are indifferent, but I mean, the honest truth too, is that a lot of the Canadians I talk to here uh, live in big cities and I mean, and um and feel insulated to some extent in a city like DC or New York right. city um, from, from the, the culture war that seems to be raging or what they view as the, the paranoia and conspiracy and authoritarianism that that's risen up out of rural America. Right. They don't travel to it very often. Um, and so, you know, it feels like, you know, not, not too not dissimilar from Canada in a lot of ways, if you're in a big city or from Toronto, I was going to say, sorry. Um, but, but, you know, th- there is a disoriented feeling like we, we were talking at the beginning, you asked me and I was talking about how you can sometimes hear very much feel that this is a strange point in American history and a, a, maybe a scary one, or maybe a, uh, and, most of the Canadians I talk to feel that to some extent or another. Um, I, I don't think that a lot of the Canadians I know here, I guess there are some who have become dual citizens, but I, I think there's a powerlessness, like even as a resident in the United States, um, it's clear to me <laughs> when I have to go renew my driver's license every year and jump through hoops and whatnot, um, that, that like I'm, I'm a, considered a, a guest here. I'm not considered a part of the culture here. Right. Um, um, and, and so you, you know, there's a sense and a lot of Canadians I've talked to who don't work in media where, where they don't really feel like they have a lot of influence on what's going to happen here. Like they do talk to their neighbors. They do try to, uh, you know, participate as members of their community, uh, certainly like in school communities or things like that. Um, but you know, there, in a, in a lot of ways, it's like when you're a Canadian living in Canada, watching the United States and maybe a bit fearful of the political turn it's taken. Part of it is knowing that whatever the United States does is going to really dramatically affect Canada. Uh, and that Canadians don't really have a lot of ways to influence it. (laughs) 
Um, and, and in some ways it feels like that living here, that, that, you know, there, there are a lot of parts of American culture that there's a lot, a lot to love about. And there's a lot of parts of living in a community in the United States that I have found, um, valuable and, and interesting to be a part of and, and really felt is, has been a valuable experience so far to, to be with these people, um, and to live in this environment. Um, but there, there, the elements that are scary are made all the scarier because it doesn't feel like you have a lot of agency to, uh, to direct a course of that, right? Like you don't get to vote, but not only that, you're an outsider here, right? It's not your place to, to try and lead this culture somewhere. So all right, a couple more here. The um, and you've written about this. The one thing that's uh, that's really distinct um, again, living here now for a couple of years versus the U.S. is that the politics. You know, it's a, it's a bit. It's become a bit of a cliche, even though there's a lot of truism. How you know you can learn all you need to know about U.S. politics by following professional wrestling. You know, there's a lot of kayfabe <laughs> yeah. and manufactured storylines and conflict-driven stuff. And, you know, some of that's performative, some of that's not. But the one really big difference, Edward, and I, I, I imagine you would agree with this, is just that, like, that spectacle doesn't exist in Canada. It, it, it exists in some forms sometimes, and it's probably bubbling more sort of in 2022 than it ever has before. But it just, that doesn't exist. Like, that, even down to, like, the elections here, there's a you know a six week period where one can campaign, and that's it. It's not mm-hmm. endless elections. Um, there's essentially not the Fox Newsization of news in Canada. It's not conflict. You're not watching conflict political television all the time. To me, that makes a big difference. And again, maybe the biggest difference is 38 million people versus 340 million people. But as again, as an observer, as a stranger in in my country right now, um, you watch this stuff and you see this stuff, particularly on media, which can be monetized. Uh, what's your sort of evaluation of that? Because it's, you know, it, it's so many times it feels like I imagine you're you're in the middle of a television show and everybody's playing their roles. The problem is that television show. Sometimes people don't realize it's a TV show, right? They they think it's real, and that's where the yeah. danger comes. Yeah, and. And what what it does seem to me like is even new here in the United States. And I, I don't mean new like this year, but new, say, over the last 20 years, it's evolved. This this as a someone who has been a longtime spectator of American politics uh, before I ever came here to to cover it professionally. But, um, it, you know, since the dawn of cable news in the United States, there ha- and especially the kind of the panel shows and the uh, opinionated shows that they accompanied it, you know, and talk radio in the US. Um, but there was a kind of a gradual evolution to that kind of like conflict theater element of of it, right? But it seems like even fairly well along into that, spin was much more common than like outright fabrication from politicians like True. spin being sort of trying to put the best possible light on, on these facts, like emphasizing the things that you think help your point de-emphasizing or using clever euphemisms to try and dismiss the things you don't want to talk about and all of that. Um, but, but that seems to have, especially, 
you know, Donald Trump kind of brought this kayfabe to a whole different level where it seems like things are just kind of invented from whole cloth or like the smallest kernel of a, of an element is blown all out of proportion into become the most all encompassing thing. And, and it becomes a whole story of like good guys and bad guys and, and, and all of that in a way that's all out of proportion. And, and, you know, you create a whole industry of fact checkers who, who used to be, you know, the, the Pinocchio meter and whatnot that I used to see would be like talking about, you know, which elements of this they're overemphasizing or de-emphasizing like what now it's just like, what's an outright lie? <laughs> what's entirely made up that, you know, 30% of people here believe and not only believe it, but believe it's the driving force in U.S. politics right now. And you're right that I don't think that exists in Canada. Um, and, and partly there's not like a domestic cable news um, empire to the same extent. Like the, the, the television and movie dominance of American products in the Canadian marketplace in a way means that we get our local news through like local news broadcasts, but there, there hasn't seemed to be a market maybe because of the number of people in Canada for the kind of all the time panel talk shows where let's fight about politics. Uh, it, there is talk radio in Canada. I used to host some talk radio uh, when I lived in Toronto and like as a part-time filling guy and whatnot. And I enjoyed it, but it's, it's less stridently political. And so, I mean, I don't know, I think your observation is a valid one and I don't know all the reasons for those differences in the political cultures, but I can say that like, even in the time I've been here, which is coming up on three years, I've noticed that that sort of professional wrestling element has become more prominent, if anything, while I'm here to the extent. That, and and the thing is, is that a lot of the time you walk around and talk to people and it seems like everybody on all sides knows even if they won't acknowledge that there, there's a lot of um kayfabe going on here right but when you're out you know at a street protest or a, a political rally talking to the true believers like there's no acknowledgement of that right um you know traveling through rural virginia or rural georgia and talking to republicans there like the this idea that like trans critical race theory woke yeah, real police are locking people up and closing their schools and taking over the system is like that's real to them yeah exactly i mean the, the great example of that and it happened before i got here but it just crystallizes it is is sort of like the the predecessor to QAnon was pizzagate right this this conspiracy theory that started online that a local pizza parlor in Northwest Washington, DC ha had a, a child slavery ring in its basement that the Hillary Clinton and other Democrats were running. Right. And, and a guy traveled there with a gun to demand that he be shown the basement so that he could investigate for himself. And it, I mean, the place didn't even have a basement literally doesn't have a basement. It was a, entirely fabricated but like people people don't know that they're supposed to that this is some kind of like meme half joke culture war trope 
they believe that it's the truth. And if and if you believe that was the truth, I mean that's that's the thing often when you when you turn things around is like Donald Trump spent so much time telegraphing uh, what how he was going to claim fraud if he lost the election, and then he started doing it. And yet, if you actually believe the election is stolen, then probably storming the Capitol seems like a reasonable response, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I don't know the solution, but it, it, it's like fascinating to be here. It's sometimes scary to be here in the middle of it. Um, and it and it doesn't feel like this is just how American politics has always been. This is this is something new. A couple more here. Um, one of the things that I feel like your job gives you the freedom of, which is to me. Very liberating, but not just that, I think important for readers is you can sort of straddle between opinion and reporting. Like within your pieces, there's analysis. Mm -hmm. Like there's yeah. here's here's what I believe exists, here's why it exists, this is my opinion on why it exists, versus just here is what happened today at this place at that time. And I think to me that I think that helps inform readers that the star has given you the latitude of that. As you know, there are some places that wouldn't allow that. Absolutely, they would want yeah. It would be one or, one or the other. Um, so why is that the case? Is that just the tradition of the star? Is uh, that something you asked for? Have you just developed into it? Because to me, I feel like that gives you a much better chance of really doing the kind of um, like explanation journalism to people that is really valuable versus just doing one or the other. Yeah, and so so – it, it is something that I asked for and various star correspondents in the past have had varying degrees of latitude there. Some, some next to none and some uh, more so, but I think like at the time when we were, when I was expressing my interest in coming down here uh, and the star was looking for somebody to come down here, I had in personally in my own career up to that point, always been essentially an opinion journalist. I was a columnist at the, at, at city in the city department. But before that I wrote magazine pieces, whatnot. I came out of alt weeklies where I just wrote foul mouth rants all the time, you know? Um, and <laughs> so, so, you know, like I wasn't suddenly going to become a, a straight news reporter. And if they were looking for that, uh, then I would have been the wrong guy. But what I, you know, the quest first question I was asked in my interview about this job in particular was like, at a time when Canadians can easily read the New York Times, watch CNN, um, and when the Toronto Star has access to wire services that are just providing tons and tons of coverage of, of American politics and American stories, uh, what, what's the value to the star of having somebody down there? And, and I said that in addition to um, places where I'm providing the primary reporting, I actually try to tr try to step back a little bit from, from providing the instant analysis. Like when Canadian cabinet ministers come down here and are talking about an important like border issue or when the pandemic was on, I had a bunch of stories about whether or not the border would reopen at a given point. And I just try when I'm trying to deliver the news and I think I'm going to be the main or only source for my readers of that news. I try to make sure that I, I give them more of a conventional picture of, of what all the relevant facts are or the relevant perspectives, like what people are saying. But when I'm covering a, a story that's already being widely covered because it's one of the most important stories in the United States. 
there's I don't know that there's a lot of value in me doing the same thing that the Canadian press and the Associated Press and Reuters are doing and that the New York Times and the Washington Post have whole armies of reporters working on those same stories. Uh, and so what I can provide is trying to put it in context a little bit for Canadians, provide a little bit of analysis to how this looks to a Canadian, try and, um, you know, t- tell them a little bit about what they're looking at. Right. And so I would say that like, my my pieces are almost all labeled analysis from Washington or analysis from wherever so that people can see that there's I'm not just dealing with the facts. I'm trying to analyze those facts and put them in a certain context. And I do think I I, I step into offering my opinion quite a bit or at least um, shaping a story based on my my own conclusions of what that analysis leads to. Uh, but But I think like the star would take a different approach if we were Canadians only source of news on the United States. But as it is Canadians in the social media era, the online era, the cable news era, the, all of that, we have lots and lots of um, ways to get the information. And I'm trying my best to, to try and put that in context to, to how it's interesting to me in particular as a Canadian and what it might mean for Canadians or what it means for Canada being beside the United States. Last one for me. And that is, um, do you have a sense as to how long you want to do this assignment? Um, not, not a firm sense at this point, actually. Uh, <laughs> when uh, probably not more than another couple of years. Um, when, when I f- first took the assignment, what I really wanted to do was it was like, on my bucket list to cover an American election, the, the primary system and the, the whole spectacle and parade of it had always fascinated me. And I wanted to you know, cover a bit of Washington and, and do an election and then see where we're at. And it was such a strange election. Um, and not just because you know, it was the Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, but because it took place in the and, and it was also fascinating because the Black Lives Matter protests were taking place at that time. But beyond that, it was a COVID election, which meant that most of the primaries got shut down. Almost all of the sort of like in-person election events you would normally travel to uh, were held digitally. I actually did travel to Milwaukee for the Democratic National Convention, but almost none of the Democratic delegates traveled to Milwaukee. It was almost entirely an online convention. So, you know. Um, and so there, there were a lot of elements of that I didn't get to cover and, but also because of the pandemic, even the normal Washington cover stuff you cover in Washington, just locally, uh, wasn't happening like the social events, but also the, also a lot of congressional reporting had to be done, you know, through zoom. So it's like, I'm sitting here in my house often, watching television <laughs> to do the reporting. And I, of course, I was still getting out into the streets. I was still traveling a bit, but there was a sense, you know, that when the election came in, it was like, okay, well, that's what I had said for sure that I'd be here two years and, and do this, you know, transition to the new presidency. There was a sense of like, well, I, I still feel like I haven't experienced as much of the U S in person as, uh, as I expected to. Right. And, and, Maybe a naive part of me thought, uh, you know, it would be interesting to do a while of just um, business as usual <laughs> coverage. But it does. It's not clear that that there's ever going to be business as usual because it's um, 
unusual has become the the norm here in American politics. So, I mean, the the short answer though to how much longer I'll be doing it is I I don't know at this point. Um, it's a decision that that you know my family and my editors and I'll continue to sort of evaluate every year or so and see what makes sense. Um, but I I do like the, the recent stuff has really made me re- reinforce for me that th- this is um. A really interesting assignment and an experience for my family to live down here, but uh, t- Toronto still feels like home. And and whether it's sooner or later, um, we expect it to come back home. Edward Keenan is the Washington bureau chief of the Toronto Star. You could read his work in that publication. Follow him on Twitter. Um, I think, uh, and again, most of the people listening to this are obviously from uh, the U.S., but. He would provide you a really interesting perspective on um, on the country, and I think many times uh, someone who sees the country from a different perspective uh, that provides interesting reporting. Edward, thank you for uh, taking the time today to come on the Sports Media Podcast, and and thank you for your reporting. I'll continue to read. Well, th- uh, thanks, thanks for having me. You know, it's a, uh, it's always like one of those um, fantasy items where I, I never seriously pursued any sports journalism but you know I, I like to write my fans notes columns uh once or twice a year uh and so you know getting to participate to whatever extent in sports media is it is <laughs> exciting opportunity uh so thanks for listening you got leafs raptors and jays they'll all be here whenever you come back don't worry not going Woo. anywhere all right back in the studio my thanks to edward keenan the toronto star for coming on that um i hope you guys find that interesting i did for sure uh, but, you know, it's going to be particularly interesting for me just given um, where I'm living now. But he does a, he does an exceptional job, in my opinion, of covering the United States. So um, check out his work for sure. Uh, previous uh, podcasts, uh, we've had obviously a number of uh, media-related, uh, sports media-related conversations. Myself and Chad Finn in, on a number of topics, including the NBA Finals and Greg Olson finally being named as... Fox's number one uh, broadcaster for the NFL this year. Uh, interviews uh, recently done include All Elite Wrestling president, head of creative Tony Khan, who's also the uh, co-owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars. I think you'll find that interesting. Tom Verducci on Roger Angel and the art of baseball writing. Leslie Visser on uh, her career. Eliana Limon Romero, who last month uh, became the first female sports editor in the history of the los angeles times there'll be stuff hopefully in the archives that you uh, that you appreciate and enjoy please check that out I want to thank patrick antonetti for all his hard work and help thanks to everybody at caves 13 and thank you for listening we'll see you soon on the sports media podcast